Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. A common theme that shows up on Super Psyched relates to the importance of naming things. When we don't have a name for a stressor, it tends to be even more distressing. You may have even heard me say that you need to name it to tame it. And that is why I'm pleased that there is a working name for an anxiety that has perplexed many people living in the modern world in the face of climate change. I'm talking about what is called eco-anxiety. Many of us feel overwhelmed by eco-anxiety and understandably ask, what can we do? Thankfully, I know just the person to ask. Heather White is an attorney by training who has taught at Georgetown University Law Center, but who now devotes her efforts to a nonprofit organization she founded called One Green Thing. She wrote a book also called One Green Thing with a foreword by Erin Brockovich that I thought was superb. Heather suggests that each of us, like members of an orchestra playing our unique instruments, can do something to reduce climate change based upon our unique strengths and personality styles. There's even a questionnaire on her website that will help you identify your skills and personality relative to climate change and what you can do to help. Doing so may reduce anxiety and help the planet now and for future generations. And as always, the content on Super Psyched is for informational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or provide any kind of healthcare treatment. For that, please consult your doctor. So listen in as Heather and I talk about eco-anxiety and one green thing each of us can do. Heather White, welcome to Super Psyched. Adam, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. It is wonderful to be with you today. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, it's such an important thing. You know, all one needs to do is see a 15, maybe 16 year old Swedish woman on a TED talk. Brilliant, by the way. For those of you who haven't yet watched Greta Thunberg's stunning TED talk, in which she basically said, how is this not the conversation all day, every day, all the time? What other stories could there possibly be that could be more important than the one that you and I are about to have, Heather? Yes. Thank you, Adam. It is the challenge of our lifetimes. This is our existential challenge. And I was telling you offline that as a Silicon Valley-based psychologist, very frequently people show up describing eco-anxiety. I didn't have a word for it before. The American Psychological Association has come to recognize eco-anxiety as a thing. Can you define it? And I've heard it said that eco-anxiety is in many ways a normal response to what's happening today. Absolutely. And I think when you said right from the top, if you don't have anxiety about the climate crisis, you're not really paying attention. So understanding that it is a healthy response is important, although it can go to extremes, which many psychologists and psychiatrists are experiencing with their clients around the world, especially for young people. So the American Psychological Association defines eco-anxiety as the chronic fear of environmental doom. 
Now that's intense, right? That's pretty intense. And it can interfere with daily life. There was a survey of 10,000 young people conducted in September, 2021. And the young people were ages 16 through 25. One out of four said they did not want to have children because they were so concerned about climate change and the future that they were inheriting. And 47% said the climate anxiety interfered with their daily life. And 75% were really worried about the climate crisis. So more and more people are connecting the dots between the climate crisis and mental health and how this came about. I first heard about climate anxiety, another word for eco-anxiety, in 2008-2009 when Lise Van Susteren, who's a psychiatrist and one of my colleagues at the National Wildlife Federation, wrote a paper about it. Now, what's interesting, Adam, is I had toddlers then. And even though I have been doing environmental advocacy for a really long time, it didn't really resonate with me as far as the mental health impacts because I was focused on all of the solutions and the science and the energy policy, et cetera, and not that mental health aspect. When I had teenagers, though, Mm -hmm. my world and my perspective on the mental health impacts of climate change changed dramatically when I started seeing it at home. And you described very poignantly an interaction you had with your daughter when she wanted to engage in some activism and you noticed that there was going to be a storm and you offered a driver and she got all the more upset. Can you describe your relationship with your daughter and how it has informed you to really double down on one green thing? Thank you, Adam. Yeah, it was one of those moments where everything came together for me. And for those of you who have teenagers, <laughs> which I do. Okay. So, you know, Adam, they I don't totally hold that. know they, they, feedback is, is a gift is what I keep reminding myself. <laughs> yeah. And I get lots of feedback in my house. So the relationship is a strong one. And it's also hard. And when you're a teen, I remember you're trying to identify how you're different, how you want to do things differently, find yourself and your boundaries and who you want to be all mixed up in this really tough time. There's so many different cascading crises that we've seen the pandemic Now we have the war in Ukraine. We have the situation of of climate change that's always the background. But for me, climate change and mental health impacts came front and center when my daughter did want to be part of the Greta Thunberg-inspired climate strike, which, of course, was in Bozeman, Montana, in our little town Mm -hmm. at the high school. And when I offered to drive her there because I didn't want her to get rained on and it was a really heavy backpack she was carrying, she got so upset. And my younger daughter did, too, of just... You're worried about my backpack. You're worried about the rain. But what are you doing about climate change, mom? It can't be on my generation's shoulders. And she gave a passion plea about how upset she was and how Gen Z, her generation, feels like no one's paying attention. And even though I had 20 years experience in environmental advocacy, my husband has as well. He does grizzly bear conservation. I mean, it doesn't get cooler than that in conservation. And he's done so much work in the climate space as well. I realized I had to step up my game and I had to figure out a way to first talk about the mental health impacts of climate change, create space for Gen Z to be heard. It's really important that we listen to their concerns about the future. And third, I had to invite more people into the movement so we can give Gen Z hope. They need to have hope. They need to know that we've done big things before and that it's not all on them, that there is an intergenerational partnership. I I say, use the terms, think beyond your age in my book, that we will partner with them to create a better future. And as you're sharing this with me, I'm thinking about a multitude of things, including the very first time I got a credit card. And I was so excited. Wow, I have real buying power. And I knew for sure there was no way I would behave irresponsibly. And of course I did. I bought all kinds of stuff and I was sure I'd find the money later and I would just sacrifice in other spaces. 
And whether it's dieting and saying, it'll be fine, I'll find a way to exercise <laughs> it off. We have this kind of fallacy of a virtuous future self that will take care of everything. And I think that the environment is a lot like that. We just imagine someone will take care of it. And one of the things that you really try to disabuse people of is that there is no Superman in this equation. There is no superhero. We're not meant to rely on other people that it's up to all of us as a large orchestra to share with our various instruments the solution. And as I even break out this little piece that we're about to unpack together, I would be remiss if I didn't say that when there is a stressor from which we feel anxiety, the more we avoid the stressor, the greater the anxiety becomes. And paradoxically, the more we approach the stressor, the less the anxiety becomes. And we seem to be doing a really good job of dancing around it, but not approaching it. And your book seems to aim to solve that from a collective position, like all of us, everybody showing up. Can you describe a little bit about the aim of your brilliant book, One Green Thing? Thank you so much, Adam. And that's so insightful. That's exactly why I wrote the book. And I'm so thrilled that you put that together after reading it, because I think that's critical for us to understand. And, and Aaron Brockovich, my dear friend, writes the foreword of the book. And her, the title of her book is called Superman's Not Coming. And her book is all about the water crisis. But what I hope that this book is, is not just a call to action for all of us to get involved, which it is a call to action, but it's not simply that, but also an invitation. An invitation through self-discovery about how you can contribute to the climate movement because we need everybody and everyone has a unique role to play. And taking that action in a way that connects with you, my whole concept is this idea of a one green thing, a daily practice of sustainability. But that daily practice is based on you, your interests, your strengths, what you care about, and you can create it. It's almost like a workbook through this book. But that action in tackling the issue each day can help reduce the anxiety and actually bring more joy into your life, but also create the culture change that we need. And I think that gets lost, Adam, because so many environmentalists like me have a wonk tendency. We're so focused on the solution and the science and the data and the math and the carbon dioxide equivalent emissions that people kind of tune out. And so what I want people to understand is that your daily practice of connecting to the earth, doing a one green thing is about a culture shift. It's not necessarily about the math of your individual carbon footprint. Although added all together, that is important and significant. It really is about that shift that we need. And everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome. We need to move from this kind of all or none mentality. I love that you were talking about embarking on a health journey or a fitness journey. I talk about that in the book. I talk about the We Fit. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> I remember the We Fit. <laughs> I had a disastrous experience with the We Fit. It didn't work for me because it just reminded me how out of shape I was and how I wasn't doing it right. And so we need to make sure that people feel welcome to start on the journey and that if you mess up, you forget to bring your bags to the grocery store one day. It's okay. You know, it's all right. But the important thing is that you keep trying every day and that we're all in it together. Yeah, nobody's going to get a scarlet letter of shame and right. that perhaps a little self-compassion in recognizing that so much of what you endorse is consistent with the practice of psychotherapy in terms of stages of readiness for change. One of the things that has come out in our research is that people are ready when they're ready. The yes. problem is, in this case, we don't have the luxury of time to prepare. According to Prochaska, if somebody's thinking about a behavior change, they start at pre-contemplation, which is denial. There's no problem. All the way to contemplation. Well, I'll get around to it at some point. 
and then kind of preparation. Okay, I'm working toward it. And then finally, action. And one of the things that you're really working hard on was described beautifully by Abigail Adams in a uh, John Adams five-part series on HBO. John Adams always had the right answer, except he bludgeoned people with the truth. And (laughs) one of the things that you also mention in your book is that people don't respond to data and facts. They respond to emotion and people don't want to be told what to do. And people don't want to be bludgeoned. People, according to Abigail Adams and everything else we've seen, wish to come to their own conclusions. And the problem here, again, is as delicate as we must be, there is this tight equilibrium because we don't have the luxury of time. And yet people will only sign on as much as they really feel it. So how do you help people move through the stages of readiness so that they can be ready to change as quickly as possible? Oh, wow. That's so thoughtful, Adam. What I try to do is, first off, I do talk about what is climate change, climate change 101. And I talk about what the oil companies knew and when they knew it. So this isn't a new phenomenon. I talk about how we're not at fault for the situation that we're in, but we are part of the solution. I also talk about how, of course, we need systemic change. If Adam and Heather skip the straw, are we going to solve the climate crisis? No, of course not, right? Of course not. But by skipping the straw, we're sending a signal in our communities and to the baristas we know and love that that is not a value we have and we're using the power that we have. And that is important. And because of movements like that, we saw a global plastics treaty announced that the United Nations is moving in that direction. And that only happens when consumers like us make a difference. So what I try to do is I set all the facts out. But one of the things I talk about is You need to figure out who you are. And I have prompts, lots of journal prompts and lots of discoveries in service. And think about climate action as an act of service, an act of service to yourself, to your community. And also this concept, I use the word future loved ones. Think of yourself as an ancestor and what type of ancestor do you want to be? So there are people that we have not met, Adam, that we love and we will love and grow to love that are related to us somehow whether they're nieces and nephews or grandkids or great-grandkids, we have an obligation to our future loved ones. So I try to kind of put it in a value-based conversation, even though I do have all the facts and figures. And one of the things that I think is important that's resonated with a lot of people, as I say, it doesn't matter if someone believes in climate change and believes in the climate crisis, right? It's a fact. It is happening. We can try to shift the needle, but let's shift the discussion to solutions. Because sometimes if you're trying to persuade someone, you don't have to get to this point of like trying to break through the denial part. Let's just talk about solutions that make sense for people because they make sense. Like everyone believes in clean air and clean water. Wind power provides clean air and clean water. The same we have with solar, like moving towards renewable energy. And that type of solution is something that you can blow past the 1.5 degrees Celsius that we're trying to maintain. You can talk about other solutions like that that are important, whether it be wilderness and preserving public spaces, excuse me, public natural areas. And actually, we know that parks and important tracts of lands like that can be nature-based carbon solutions. They're carbon sinks. It's really an important solution, conservationist. So there's ways that you can talk about the solutions and move past the what is your belief in that polarizing issue. And let's just talk about what we can build together. What is our legacy going to build together? Because that's where we have a lot of commonality. Absolutely. And one would think that every great kind of existential threat movie corroborates something we know in psychology, social psychology research. That is the best way to unite humans or people of any walk of life is to come up with a common enemy. We have a common enemy, except we have different stories around it. 
And that seems to be problematic. How do we begin to perhaps get everybody on the same page so that they can at least realize this is a thing? This is not, I mean, this is not a negotiable, movable fact. This is actually happening. And if we don't take care of it, regardless of political affiliation, you will be subject to fires, to rising waters, to increased parts per million. I mean, Mauna Loa is showing far higher than 350 parts per million of carbon than ever before, and it's rising. These are objective. These are not facts with quotes around them. These are facts. This may seem controversial, but trying to convince people, I mean, I've heard weather is going to do what weather is going to do. Trying to convince people, I think it's worth a shot, but I think we can't spend much time there anymore because we don't have the time. I think that those, I think we have to shift our focus to doing what we can with the majority of Americans and a majority of people around the world that know human activity, mostly our consumption of fossil fuels for energy and transportation are causing global warming. I mean, that's, it's a fact. 99% of climate scientists agree. It's a fact. So I think that we're losing ground and losing momentum if we try to shift all those people. We, we just need to keep saying the truth, invite them in, invite them to say, hey, even if you don't think it's this or this, let's talk about these positive solutions, like I said before. But I think we're reaching a point where we're wasting energy. I know that seems a little harsh, <laughs> but it's true, which is why I try to have people pick their lane. If, you're, if you want to get involved in the climate movement, Adam, you don't have to be a renewable energy expert. That doesn't have to be your new hobby. You can talk about the importance of nature and downtime in nature as an important healing aspect of any mental health protocol that counts as climate action in my book. You could decide that you are focused on wildlife conservation. You could be really passionate about water. There's all these different ways that you can show up in the climate movement that aren't necessarily about Exxon and ConocoPhillips, although those big oil companies are the ones that are responsible for the vast majority of carbon emissions that we have experienced over the, since 1990. It's like 70 companies are responsible or 100 companies are responsible for 70% of the carbon emissions we've experienced. So I think that that's, let's not spin our wheels. Let's talk about solutions. Let's invite people in. Let's talk about people's values. Let's talk about their legacies. I and mean, for example, you could have someone who doesn't, quote, believe in climate change, but they don't want a coal plant next door to their kid's house. You know? Right. Let's talk exactly. to them. Right. I mean, it doesn't have to be this big. You don't have it. I think, and even stepping back, I think this is important when we're talking about social change, too. People perceive the environmental movement as being very puritanical. Aha. Like, how can you sell your book on Amazon if you're an environmentalist? Well, because I live in 2022 and <laughs> the best way for me to get my message out is to have it available on Amazon. It's also in independent bookstores. It's on all kinds. It's available in online soon. I promise, Adam, it'll be available in audiobook. <laughs> totally. There's all these different ways, but that's not a gotcha. Like, we need to embrace what I call kind of the germ theory. You know, it's not about perfection. It's about progress. We're going to make mistakes. And I think sometimes the people who we assume are climate deniers are really don't want to be judged. There's this shame. There's this shame that people feel when they realize what's happening to the environment. They want to be involved, but it's so overwhelming. They don't know where to start. And so that's where I think this book comes in as an invitation to begin where you are. Come as you are is kind of the mantra of the book. And let's take it from there. But whether you're a believer or whether or not you have solar panels on the top you know, roof of your house, that just depends. I don't have solar panels. I use as much clean energy as possible. I buy carbon offsets for all my trips. I try, but you can't do it all because we need these big changes. So come as you are is my answer to that. 
Okay, so trigger warning, I'm going to be a little gross, but imagine that people didn't believe that peeing in the pool actually caused the pool to pool water to pee ratio to, I should say the pee water to pool water to increase. It does, whether you believe it or not. So it sounds like what you're doing this from is a behavioral approach. Like it doesn't matter if you believe or don't believe, but everybody can do something to stop peeing in the pool. So, uh, but also if you have lots of people talking about how let's not pee in the pool, here's why. The people who want to be in the pool are thinking, okay, maybe I will change as long as it's not like Adam, Adam peed in the pool. (laughs) Don't talk to Adam because that shame is a barrier for people changing their behavior. I mean, you're an expert on that. Totally. And so what what we want to do is just orient them towards the bathroom so that maybe that they don't do that. Maybe before you get in the pool, even if you don't feel like peeing, pee. Um, <laughs> like there's a systems approach, right? Everyone needs to go to the bathroom before they get into the pool. That's one like, of our like whether rules. and so we'll, we'll get into the kind of behavioral <laughs> economics in a second. But there's so many things that are going on here, and you're speaking beautifully to the overwhelm that all of us experience. Overwhelm around there are so many things that seem to need to be done. Like if I'm going to do this quote right, I'd better not be on Amazon. I'd better never use a car. I'd better never buy anything that has plastic in it. And that's not what you're saying at all, that you still need to live your life. You just need to live it more consciously and recognize what you bring to the world in terms of your gifts to assist in, I'm going to call it an orchestra. Like you don't want a percussionist to be relegated to the strings. You want a percussionist to enjoy playing the hell out of the percussions and the string players to play their strings and to know who the conductor is and everybody can look and hopefully play in some modicum of sync. And you've come up with this brilliant way of addressing people's strengths, almost like senior VP of HR trying to allocate like, okay, if you're good at this, then you do this. And if you're good at that, you do that through various gifts that each of us kind of come into the world with almost borrowing from the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or other personality driven uh, tests. You've come up with various styles that each of us have to bring to the solution. I was wondering if you could unpack some of those. And by the way, I did take the test. I'm an influencer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised, Adam, that you're an influencer. Because you're always connecting people, you're spreading the news on latest research, you're trying to lift people up through that energy of people and networks. That's so marvelous. Well, Enneagram, Strength Finders, Myers-Briggs, those were all inspirations because I realized that people needed an entry point into the climate movement. And also with respect to behavior change, I'm a big fan of James Clear, Atomic Habits. Huge. And he talks about how important identity is in maintaining a habit. So my thought is that if you can figure out who you are in service to others, and then you have this plan, a one green thing plan of a one green thing to do each day, but you know it's for the adventurer or you know it's for the philanthropist, you're more likely to actually keep up that habit because you see yourself in that role and that's how you show up for others. So that was the inspiration and the point of bringing this so people know they don't have to be all things for all people. And I've actually had a wonderful reception to the assessment. So one of my dear friends thought, oh my gosh, I'm a philanthropist. I'm so glad. I'm not a protester. I'm not someone who's reading all the latest news like a wonk. I like the outdoors, but I'm not spending a lot of time like canoeing and kayaking. That's not my thing. But if you want me to throw a party, I will throw an amazing party, get all the right people there. And raise a ton of money. 
for whatever cause I need. And so, and the philanthropist doesn't actually have to be someone who is a fundraiser, but it's more the person who's a giver, who's giving up and showing. And that released her from all these other things that she thought she should be doing. It's not a pass, but she was able to focus on what she's really good at. So I'm happy, Adam, if that makes sense to kind of go through the different profiles. Yes. So people yes. Can kind and of and I want to give a shout out to, you know, all of us have something that we bring. My sister-in-law is the world's greatest host. She loves being a host. Right. I don't. <laughs> so I would be misused. So what are the profiles? Just kind of 30,000 foot, like 30,000 30, foot perspective on the different ways we can help. Great. So there's seven different profiles. The first is the adventurer. And this person is focused on taking people outside their comfort zones. They're hands-on learners. They love the outdoors. They're very physical in how they approach life and how they approach adventures. So that's the adventurer. The second is the beacon. And this person is usually out front on social change. They're often entrepreneurs. They're the kind of folks that you would see in front of the megaphone or at the podium at a rally. The third is the influencer, which is what you are. Their mantra is people, people, people. They're all about sharing information, sharing networks, making sure that people feel inspired by connecting with each other and making sure that people are well-educated and excited about the future. So that's the influencer. Then there is the philanthropist, which is what I am, which is the giver. The person who's all about giving time, giving resources, giving energy to different causes that they love. They're also great connectors as well, but they show up with their time. And then there's the sage, which is focused on the spiritual connection to nature. And this is my mom, 100%. She is all about spending time in the outdoors. She has a very strong faith. And for her, environmental action is all about protecting, in her view, God's creation. And then there's the spark, which is really fun because the spark is the plus one. This is the person who's always there for their friends. Like, Adam, you've got a cool lecture that you're giving and you want me to go, I'm in. That's the spark. Without the spark, there isn't a movement. You don't always have to be in charge of everything. You can be leading from behind. You can be there for your friend. And then finally, there's the wonk. And the wonk is the person who's all about science and data and numbers and usually can translate these complex scientific issues into an easy way for people to understand. So those are the seven different profiles. A lot of environmentalists are wonks. So we need to kind of lean into more of the influencer, lean into more of the sage to get more people focused on climate action. One of the things that you're implying and even directly saying at times is that addressing climate change doesn't have to be drudgery. It actually could be fun by using our organic strengths. I'm wondering if you could describe some of the talents and strengths and how they might even be fun and eventually over time, not only habitual, but to your point that they become a part of our identity that they become an identity habit, not just a behavioral habit, but as you said earlier, an identity habit. I'm saying that many times, listener, an identity habit is I am a swimmer. The other guy who says I swim three times a week for exercise, that's a behavioral. I am a swimmer means I have to swim. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about the identity habits and how we can make it fun, how we could bring our talents to this giant picnic to address climate change sustainably. Oh, I love that. So. The adventurer, for example, if you're an adventurer, you can make it fun by seriously inviting friends out for a walk outside. (laughs) Now, that sounds so simple, right? How does that solve the climate crisis? But taking friends outside, having them look up that stillness, that time to connect with the outdoors, scientific peer-reviewed literature shows cortisol drops, a sense of calm and wellness happens. You are more mindful and that re-energizes people. So that's a really simple thing to do. If you're a wonk and if you're an adventurer, you may really love to call the following number, 
3-1-2-1. That's the Capitol Hill switchboard. And you just type in your zip code and you get connected to your representative or your senator's office. And you can say, I want strong climate action policy now, or I want this renewable energy proposal to happen, or I want you to protect wildlife. Whatever issue you care about, you can raise your voice. This is also a great thing for a beacon to do. And that is an identity habit. And you can do it in a car. I mean, it's really so easy. And that is the job of those members of Congress to hear what we have to say. That's what they get paid our money for. Another thing that you can do is spend time in a garden. I know, again, like a garden, this is so simple. This isn't life-changing, but it is life-affirming. And making sure we're thinking about how our food is grown, where it's grown, is a really important part of understanding the pieces that fit together with climate action. Another thing you can do is go to your local school board. And there's been a lot of things in the news about school boards lately, but go to your local school board and ask what they're doing for climate change education and sustainability education. We've got to get Gen Z prepared for all these incredible opportunities in art and science and engineering with this clean energy future that we're supporting. So it can be as simple as Anne Lamott. One of the things I I love, one of her great quotes is she says, go outside, look up, secret to life. And it can be as simple as go outside, look up. That can be your one green thing or your one green thing can be sharing a technical paper on solar or calling a member of Congress. It's really what works for you based on who you are and what you're good at. And it's that momentum, that cultural change that we can get through that daily practice. And as you're describing these, it seems like these are none of these are endpoints. These are all really portals to entry and One of the things that I have really geeked out to as a wonk in other departments is the idea of awe. Awe is usually generated actually from looking at nature. When we Mm -hmm. see a sunset, when we see something beautiful, a bird that we can't believe, we are awestruck. And if we were to put our brains under a PET scan while under the influence of awe, what we would see is that we are more socially conscious, we are kinder. And in fact, the same effects that we would get from something like psilocybin, the psychoactive component of a mushroom, psychoactive magic mushroom, is actually endogenously elicited in our brains and we become more open, kind. And if we look at this as a portal to entry again, yeah, it gives way of becoming a naturalist and walking around helping bears like your husband's doing. Mm-hmm enjoying the outside means that you're going to want to probably become a protector of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I love when you talk about the awe and how inspiring that can be, because especially I talk a lot about this book being an invitation to join the climate movement, an invitation of self-discovery about who you are and what you care about and how you want to show up for your future loved ones. But it's also for veteran activists. A lot of people who've been doing this for a long time are very tired. And my whole idea is if you lean into that awe, you can get that energy too. And if you have that daily practice, even if you're an activist, and again, the practice doesn't have to be a policy paper or testifying before Congress or installing solar panels, it can be simple and it can be beautiful. And that means it can be fun. And I have to tell you, when you look at the 21 day action plan, some of the things you might find that are a little off, something like outside your comfort zone are going to be fun. Calling members of Congress is fun. It's so fun. And I've had, you know, I've had Gen Zers say to me, look, our member of Congress, I live in Montana. My member of Congress does not align with any issue that I am aligned with. And so what's the point of calling? Well, the point of calling is to make sure that that member of Congress knows he is not alone and that he has constituents that do not agree with him, especially when it comes to climate energy policy. And that breaking through that bubble is very important. So your calls, your letters do make a difference. 
And that's something that we often forget. What difference will it make? I imagine somebody else will be writing. I imagine a wonk will be writing a letter. I don't need to write the letter. And the fact is, it does matter that (laughs) these things pile up. And the more that we vote with our wallets, the more that we vote with actions, the more that we get things out there in whatever form. I'm not a bumper sticker guy, but there are some people who like bumper stickers. They may or may not trigger change. But the more that we do, that is kind of our own freak flag is is really important for us to rock that because no one else is going to rock our freak flag. And sometimes we just need to overcome that complacency that whatever is holding us back and just do it. Kind of that Mel Robbins five second rule of just like count down from five to one and just do it, do something. And we can be overwhelmed. I think about the great science that's shown up around what's called the paradox of choice. Barry Schwartz, a former guest on my podcast who now teaches at Haas School of Business out in Berkeley, describes that when we have too many options, we are less likely to act than if we have up to, say, three options. I'm wondering if you could provide my listeners with maybe up to three really easy to do things that they could do by the end of this episode or start by the end of this episode. Three things. The first one, take a walk outside and be mindful. Take five minutes, breathe in the air, notice the sounds, look up like Anne Lamott says. It's actually that simple and reset, appreciate where you are and appreciate nature. Even if it is, even if you're in a super urban area, even if it's a tree or a plant, even if it's just a flower that you see, an insect that you see, something very simple. So that's the first thing. The second, and this is funny and really dorky, but it's important, menu planning. Write down what you're going to eat next week, especially if you're cooking meals at home, which I encourage you to do because food waste is one of the top five greenhouse gas contributors when we're thinking about individuals and the impact that we have. So if you can be mindful about how you're going to use your leftovers and plan out your shopping list, you can reduce your food waste. And the third thing I would say, and this is depends on where you are, because in San Francisco and the Bay Area, you're lucky because composting happens at the local level. But in Montana, we're doing it ourselves. And the third is to compost. I mean, just again, dealing with that food waste. Those are three, three simple things. And if you want to add a fourth, because composting is part of your daily life already, because again, you had that system change where you live. We don't even have to think about it. I would say, call your member of Congress 202. (laughs) <laughs> two, two, four, <laughs> two, one. Just put that Say in. Say it like, again, by the way. 202-224-3121. And just call your member of Congress and see, what you're, see what's on your mind. Love that idea. That's such a great idea. And one of the things that we know can reduce anxiety and depression is getting outside. The technical term is biophilia. <laughs> and we also know that engaging in an aerobic or cardio exercise for about 40 minutes, five to six times per week. By the way, this is not a substitute for medical advice, folks. This right. is, but I of do course. not have. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you are not my patient, but I am right. just kind of sharing the detail. <laughs> but what you're asking for has a multitude of positive effects. And I'm also thinking about the paradox. When we see our beautiful nature being harmed, like through fires and a host of other ways, it can be very depressing. And the incidence of depression, I know correlation is not necessarily causation, but we do have greater incidence for a host of reasons. I would posit including eco-anxiety and climate change as an exacerbating factor to our individual and collective mental health. Would you agree with that? Agree 100%, 100%. One of the things I would say, and this is you know one of those tricky to- topics where people get nervous, but it is a great idea, is to plan a go bag if you have to evacuate. I live in Montana. The fires are intense. I know in 2020, the skies of San Francisco, that day glow orange. 
more and more, and this is what you need to back to our earlier conversation about people who don't believe in climate change. Most of us over the next five years will have an extreme weather event that we experience that will shift many people's perspective on what we're experiencing and what is the future that we're inheriting. So just having that go back ready to, to roll. The Red Cross has been saying this for 50 years, right? <laughs> but it's just important to know where everything is. And so if you have to evacuate, you do. Again, that is um, a hard conversation to have, but you can reduce your anxiety by knowing where it is. I would encourage it not to be in plain view because that will create more anxiety. Sure. But if you know it's in a closet or a certain part of your garage, you can just run with it when you need to. As I'm thinking about something else, I mean, just the idea that within the next mm-hmm. five years, each of us will probably have some type of personal experience with this. And the closer we get to 2030, the correct, the less good it is. Obviously, it's, it's already incredibly not good. We are, according to one statistic I read recently, using four trillion plastic bags per year. That comes down to about 600 plastic bags per person. But that aside, let's say, let's imagine that we were able to. From our current professional experiences and perhaps encouraging our children to enter professions, areas of study, possibly enterprises or entrepreneurship that would support a healthier planet, even perhaps even coming up with apps to gamify a person's life so that they are able to enjoy life while simultaneously contribute to the well-being of the planet. What are some kind of perhaps creative or even kooky solutions that might help people do the right thing? I love this question, Adam, because it gets to what I was trying to say earlier about the solutions. And if we can start talking about the positive world we can create together, we can get people really excited because there's so many opportunities. There's opportunities when it comes to the sustainable products and design. How do we make sure that we use less plastic, that we're thinking about the materials that we use, That's an incredible opportunity for industrial engineers, for chemists, for designers, for entrepreneurs. That's really key. There's also in design, when we're talking about the built environment, this idea of rooftop gardens and what materials we're using, non-toxic carpets and how we design buildings so they're more energy efficient. There's this really cool off-the-wall concept called solar punk. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's Definitely really fun. Not, but I'm intrigued. It's fun to Google and look at. Some of it's really, again, off the wall. But the idea is that it's recruiting artists and creative people to try to envision what our cities could look like. Let's put math and the building you know, aside, but just what could it look like? And when you see kind of the vision of some of these artists of what we could look like with bikes everywhere, with, again, the rooftop gardens, with gardens on buildings with community areas where we're growing food, with solar panels everywhere integrated into tiles, our electric cars. It's really exciting and beautiful. I love your idea about an app to gamify sustainability. I think there's an incredible opportunity with that too. And I think, you know, I'm going on a book tour and I've offset all of my travel costs, excuse me, not travel costs, but the carbon emission carbon costs emission with, costs, right. with carbon offsets. But with Zoom and all these opportunities, there's ways that we don't have to actually be physically in the same space that can reduce our footprint. But there's so many opportunities. One of the people I interview in my book, because I have eco heroes that represent the different profile is Greg Renfrew of Beauty Counter. And Greg created this amazing safe cosmetics company that's focused on sustainable design and less toxic chemicals in makeup. And it's just changed so many people's lives because they start to think of themselves as not only being empowered in what they put on their skin and how they look and feel, but the products that they're using and really focusing on safe products. That's a great example of, of entrepreneurship in action. There's just and, so, so much to do. 
and, and there's a lot of excitement around such things as using carbon waste as fuel. Yes. Uh, there are these companies that are coming about. And I'm thinking that if everybody can contribute in their own way, even academically, like somebody, if you're going to college now and you have a proclivity for the sciences, yeah, become an environmental scientist. If you are more of an Aaron Brockovich, get into environmental law. If you're into politics, by all means, and carry this with you as something. Are there some other areas of study or skill that might yeah. people might overlook? I keep talking about design, but there's so many wonderful new companies coming up, ThreadUp, Postmark, Rent the Runway. When it comes to fashion, this idea of we don't, you know, a lot of big brands are doing what's called fast fashion, where it used to be there were four seasons a year with the big brands and now it's 20 because they're just manufacturing all of this clothing and that's flooding landfills in developing areas. It's just been a real impact on the environment. So if we think about reduce, reuse and recycle, if you're not into that sweater that you have anymore, giving it away to charity or into a secondhand store and actually going secondhand store for shopping can be a big incentive. So ThreadUp does this, but they do it online. So it's just a great way. Same with Rent the Runway. You don't have to spend you know, a gazillion dollars for a fancy dress. If you have an occasion, just rent it for a night. So there's all kinds of great ways for entrepreneurship and design, of course, in engineering, of course, when it comes to energy, this idea of having solar cells in rooftop tiles, as opposed to these big panels, you just like we saw the phones used to be like bricks you know, when I was growing up, I remember the them, yeah. was like this size of a shoe. It's now it's so tiny, you know, this idea of being able to go to scale because we can make things more accessible. Also in transportation, all kinds of incredible things to do there. I mean, just, I feel like, and I've heard this said by, excuse me, by um, Jamie Alexander with Project Drawdown, which you don't know, I highly recommend you check out Project Drawdown, a wonderful resource for climate solutions. But she says every job is a climate job. And I think that we're going to see that. I mean, as a psychologist, Adam, you are seeing and will continue to see patients with eco-anxiety. There are ways that you can have them get involved. If you're a lawyer, you're going to be dealing with challenges with limited resources as we deal with with climate. If you're a city planner, you're going to be thinking about making sure you're building climate adaptation in the cities that you're building. If there is a flood or a natural disaster that you have to deal with. If you're a doctor, you're going to be thinking about that. If you're a real estate agent, climate refugees, a big article in the New York Times in September, 2021, about more people moving as they're trying to run away from fires or run away from floods. I mean, it's just, it's going to impact every aspect of our life. And I realize my wonk just came out big time so what I just said was very scary. Totally. <laughs> People are moving because of virus <laughs> and the natural disasters. But yeah. <laughs> great opportunity to think about how we all can support each other and all this creativity and opportunity for innovation. And I love that idea that every job is a climate job. And it would be my hope also that people so inspired would create perhaps an open source catalog, a book online whereby people could search based on their skills, some super geeky, maybe even super specific ways that they can deliver. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? So since we know that we reduce anxiety by moving toward the stressor, having a really good, gigantic resource of easy, but perhaps really surprisingly effective ways. I, I like thinking about the 80-20 rule and that there's so many things out there and perhaps 20% of them will cause 80% of the actual change that we seek. Are there some things that people may overvalue that under deliver to the client and some things that we may undervalue that may actually make a big difference towards a better climate? 
That is a great question. And I think one of the challenges is that, and this is a challenge for my favorite DC word, real people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a challenge for real people to get involved in the movement is that the science changes all the time. Like you think you're doing the right thing, you've invested all of this and then bam, like gas stoves, right? All these people are super excited about gas stoves. Now there's a concern about air pollutants inside your house because of gas stoves. And then the natural, almost all the natural gas that's coming into your house, 85% of it is methane. And methane, of course, is a greenhouse gas contributor. So now people are suggesting that you move to induction stoves, which is a huge investment for a lot of folks. So that becomes the science changes and what we learn changes, but it's the same in healthcare. It's the same in psychology and mental health. What we change as we grow, we change as we learn more information. So I think that I think I would just step back as opposed to a particular solution, although I will say food waste is a big one for households and being mindful, of course, of everything that you've heard from your grandparents, just turn off the lights, right. <laughs> you know, be mindful of your energy use. So food waste and energy use, which is, again, my grandparents were adults during the depression. So this is like how I knew how they lived. They just lived. They didn't think of it as, as climate action or being a steward of the earth. It was just being frugal for them. But that's very important. I think stepping back, it's do the best that you can and think about what you buy. I think that's important. Trying to choose to green products, try to avoid single use plastic when you can use less plastic, use more real stuff, but think more top line as opposed to the micro solution. Because I think that's the big challenge is that we're seeing things shift so so quickly. One of the other things I would say, and I encourage this in the book, is to get to know your utility company. Huh. <laughs> how dorky is that, Adam? Yeah, but it's tell, true. Me more, tell us like, more about that. How, how do well, we get and, people, and why is that important? It's just magic. For a lot of people, it's just magic. You know, we know we need to charge our cell phones and our computers and the energy is just magic. But call your utility and try to find out well, how much of it comes from renewable energy. And is there an opportunity that you have to switch to renewable energy? So even in Montana, we can buy things called renewable energy credits. So even though a lot of our energy comes from coal, not all of it, there is solar and there's wind and there's hydropower, but we can decide that the energy that we use, we're going to buy a renewable energy credit. And see, this is where kind of, I know I'm kind of talking all over, this might seem all over the place, but it does all have a common thread. This is the challenge with individual action, right? I say that the individual action drives the culture change because we need the systemic solutions. We need the system where everyone has to use the bathroom before they get into the pool. It's just kind of a habit that we all do. And we have, you know, we have a nice little entryway to the pool through the bathroom. And it's clear that you're not supposed to go pee in the pool, right? That's how our conversation has. I know. But it's so on point and I think it's visceral. And nobody right. wants to be in a pee-filled pool. <laughs> right, I think exactly. that in a similar way, we don't want to be in a planet that has the right. rough equivalent. Exactly. Circulating, whether we believe it's happening or not. Exactly. exactly. Um, but we, I mean, what, what we do need for sure is a shift to clean energy. There's no doubt about it. That is the number one thing we can do. And that doesn't happen with Adam and Heather, although we could buy solar panels. It happens at a national, international level where we're seeing investments be made in these energy systems that we have already made, invested billions in, into oil and coal. So one thing I want to highlight is any form of change incurs loss. And that's one of the reasons that people mm. are so resistant to it, even if it's good change. And that's why when John Adams bludgeons us with the truth, we don't want to do what he says for several reasons, including the change is hard, but we also don't like being told what to do. So a lot of people are having resistance because of these two things, at least the one being the loss incurred. And the other is, I don't want to be told I want my freedom. And then I find myself thinking about two brilliant economists out of the University of Chicago, Thaler and Sunstein, who wrote a book in 2005 called Nudge. It's been updated. It's fantastic. (laughs) And they basically describe ways that we can help 
kind of gently encourage people to do the right thing. One of the big ones was they were describing that since we now know that organ donation is a good thing to do for society in general, that the only way not to be an organ donor is by opting out. But I'm wondering, is there something if you were if you had the ear of someone in higher administration who could cause us to do the right thing while incurring the least amount of loss, what would be your policy wish? Oh, wow. That is a great, great question. I think my policy wish, I don't know how I would design the nudge. And maybe, I mean, partly it's already happened with the divest movement. A lot of campuses around the United States, the students have pushed the administration to take these huge endowments and to not invest in oil and coal. I think that's very important and very powerful, but I think my nudge would be is to support clean energy on campus, which a lot of campuses are already doing, and incorporate the conversation about what that clean energy regenerative future can look like. Does you that know, sound too technical? That might, might not, have gone not in the really least. long and, there. Okay. <laughs> as, as, you're, as you're unloading that, Heather, I'm thinking about Costa Rica, very forward-thinking country. I believe 99% of its energy is renewable, water, yes. wind, solar. They've figured it out. Right. Can we do that here? We can't. I mean, the answer is yes. Emphatically, yes, we can do it. We have all the solutions. They're all available to us. We're the United States of America, right? We can do it. The (laughs) The challenge is cultural. The challenge is cultural. The political will only changes with the culture shift, which is why we all need to act and we all need to say that this is important to us. And with the book, kind of getting back to your whole concept of the nudge, the book tries to be a nudge. I'm not Heather White telling you, buy this product, don't buy that product. Do this thing, don't do that thing. I do have some suggestions for you that may work for you and things that have worked for me, but it's much more of a, who are you? What matters to you? What do you want the future to be like for your kids, grandkids? And if you don't have them, your future loved ones, how are you going to be an awesome ancestor and how can you contribute? So it's much more of come on a journey with me. You are the hero. I'm a guide. And I think that's very important. And that doesn't happen very often in environmental books. It's very much like, this is the bad actor. We're all doing it wrong. This needs to happen. And I think what we have to understand is that we all need to do what we can do, even if we're one person. And so I think that gets to this concept of a nudge. But I love to get it back to the bull analogy, which I promise this is the last time I'll mention it. <laughs> this idea of like what behavior is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we have to be careful because some people have a lot of people including my fam- some of my family members, have taken this in as shame and judgment. And if we can move past the shame and have these honest, open conversations about solutions and figure out what aligns with your values and what's important, we can do that. But full stop, we need to invest in solar and wind. Totally agree. So yeah, and I'm thinking, yeah, we are the United States of America. We did win the space race. We can do this. Mm -hmm. We just need to get gritty. So Heather, there may be some people out there who are so dogmatic and perhaps even a little judgy and may actually turn off otherwise perhaps people who would want to contribute to the solution, but they become polarized because the messaging is so harsh or unpleasant or so black and white. What would be your what would be your advice to both parties, the party that's kind of judgy as well as the party that feels a little judged and maybe even a little bit resentful about the changes that need to be made? Such an important question. And you actually kind of mentioned this as also like taking a positive step can also sometimes feel like a loss. 
So I talk about this in the book and I talk about the importance of intergenerational conversation on climate, which would apply even if it's the same generation, just a friend who has a different perspective than you do. And the idea of sitting down and just talking it out and understanding that we can't lean into all or none thinking when it comes to environmental behavior change. We have to give room for people to understand that, of course, individual action matters, but we must have systemic change. But it's not one or the other. They're intertwined. But if you mess up one day, like, for example, one of my dear friends who's a water activist has a hilarious story. She was on a plane drinking bottled water and she's anti-bottled water. And this person recognized her and said, I see you drinking that bottled water. (laughs) And she said, I forgot my water bottle. What am I supposed to do? Drink out of the airplane toilet? Like for the airplane (laughs) bathroom? Like, no, I'm going to buy some bottled water. So we live in this society, right? That makes it hard for us to make sustainable choices unless we're doing all these things. And so we just have to give ourselves breathing room. And I think The importance of the conversation is to make sure that you create a space where you can give each other grace. For example, if a family member has a certain way of doing things or they want to compost in a particular way, you honor that as much as you can, but just ask them to give you grace if you're not quite doing it right. And the fact is, is whether or not you compost one day will not affect global carbon emissions, right? We all know that, but it is the habit and it's the practice that makes a difference And everyone is welcome and we all do it a little differently. So I would just say grace is the most important thing and to try to, and the way that you get to that is talking about it. (laughs) And I love that. And one of the things that we know is that shaming polarizes. Shaming doesn't help. Shaming actually causes the problem to be exacerbated. And if one of the ways that we repair the world is actually through our relationships, let's not taint the relationships as we try to untaint the planet. So I think that's, Very powerful. And that relates to one of your other questions, Adam, about people who don't believe in climate change. And that's, I think, what I was trying to say. I think that what you said is what I was trying to say is that, for example, it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change. I think what I was trying to say is that the relationship is important and is primary. But let's talk about what you can agree on, which is the future that we want to create together and find the solutions that work as opposed to those details that can bog the relationship down. I think that's an important shift with that grace and putting those relationships center. And just knowing how we work, and you mentioned your mother is a woman of faith. One of the things that we also know is that faith and hope are essential in this, as well as drawing a really good picture of what our target looks like so that we can come from a place of hope to begin to get strategic, come from a place of faith to begin to realize that what we do matters and may contribute to a better reality for our ancestors, especially since we are not on average very good at delaying gratification. And this is the ultimate form of gratification delay. So is there anything I should have asked but haven't yet? This is brilliant, Adam. Thank you for being so thoughtful about loving you. I am. I am just I really Verklempt. <laughs> like it just means so much to me that you took the time and, and dove into the book and asked. Oh, hell yes. Well, I've got, I've got a final question Thank then. You. Five years from now, what is your hope of the legacy of this book? Oh, I hope that this becomes a movement. I hope that we see people incorporating a one green thing in their way of life. I hope this becomes you know, a lifestyle and that. We have seen significant action on the federal and international level and that people looking back five years from now can say that this book helped me realize that I was an environmentalist. Even if I'm not a protester, even if I 
mess up every now and then and have Ziploc bags in my drawer, (laughs) that it's not an all or none thing, but that I care about the future my kids, grandkids, and future loved ones are inheriting and that I'm glad I'm part of this movement. That's what I hope. I couldn't agree more. I think that you've really laid the foundation in a very accessible way with this book and in an empowering way that everyone can feel like they can represent their gifts in terms of healing the planet. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this book. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me and share your wisdom with my listeners. Thank you, Adam, for all that you do to help people be their their best selves. I, I really appreciate this time with you. It's been wonderful. Right back at you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 